I know we have visitors with us this morning in the audience, and uh, you're our honored guest. We also welcome those who are joining us on uh, social media. And I think this morning at our 8.30 service, there were 110 uh, gathered together, and it's certainly good to see you gather together to worship God this morning. In our assembly this morning, uh, Brother Jordan Coates will be leading our singing. Brother Johnny Parker has the opening prayer. Brother Andrew Langley will do the scripture reading. Brother Ken Forrest will bring us the lesson. Brother Jeremy Jones will lead us as we observe the Lord's Supper. And then uh, Brother Chris Beard will have our announcements and closing prayer. Would you bow with me, please? Our loving Heavenly Father, we are so thankful for your blessings, especially this blessing of being able to worship you. We pray, Father, that all we do would be pleasing in your sight. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Morning. Our song this morning will be He Lives, number 346. I serve a risen Savior, he's in the world today. I'm Oh 
for the opportunity we have to together here as a group of Christians. Lord, be with every member here and be with Brother Ken as he brings the message. Let's apply it to our hearts. Help us to realize our faults and help us also to strive to become better Christians, better people, and better uh, ministers out in the community. Lord, we want to uh, especially request your blessings on those in our family and in their community who have recently lost loved ones. Let us help and minister them as much as we can and show you in, in our hearts to the community. Lord, be with us as we go throughout this week. Keep us safe and be with us through this next hour. Let everything that we do be according to your will and for the purpose of bringing others unto you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Seven. Song before our lesson this morning will be Follow Me, number 395. <laughs>
to the place which they called Calvary. They crucified him and the other criminals, on which the other, which one was on the right hand, the other on the left. Good morning, everyone. Terrific to see you today. First day of the week, free to gather. We can worship God in spirit and in truth. And with that freedom, you've been doing just that, haven't you? Thank you, four of you. That was wonderful. So just inspiring. We just love to gather and worship, don't we? We do. And you just make church family a wonderful experience. I hope that everybody who is a part of this assembly today. If you're a member here, you feel like you're a part of that family. And it truly is a privilege to assemble, free to do so, and to be associated with such great people. We're going to be praying together that God will bless us as we continue our time of worship. And I do hope that God will really touch our hearts our lives today in the study of his word. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the privilege it is to assemble in this building to participate in worship to you. I pray, Father, that all that we have done has been in spirit and in truth, that our worship has been not just acceptable to you, but that you have had great pleasure in what we've offered you this morning. I pray, Father, that you will bless us now as we enter into another component of our worship, that despite the potential for distraction, that you will help us to be so mindful of you and your way of the power of your word, that we will be able to focus intently 
upon the things that you would have us to know, to think on. And I pray, Father, that our time together will be a spiritual feast for us. I pray that you will help me as your servant to present your word in a way that people can understand and find useful. And I pray for those who receive your word that they will make it a part of them and that they will be inspired to live lives that are wholly governed and driven by you and your will. Thank you for the privilege and the blessing it is to be able to be your children. And we thank you for Jesus and his sacrifice that makes our relationship with you possible. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Well, out of this text from Luke chapter 23, verse 33, there are four words used in succession that I want us to examine together. These are four short, very simple words that themselves are pregnant with meaning as they sum up for us one of the most important days in human history. There they crucified him. The symbol of the cross is ubiquitous. I see it everywhere. I see it adorning people as jewelry. I see it in architecture lots of times especially in church buildings. It's a common symbol in our time. In fact, one might say, generally speaking, it's so common, people take little note of it anymore. But in a first century context, the symbol of the cross then was not something you would wear as jewelry or adorn your house with. It was a symbol of rejection and degradation. A person would no more likely wear the symbol of a cross around their neck than they would in our time wear a symbol of uh, electric chair. It was a device of execution for the most heinous of criminals when the Apostle Paul began to speak a message concerning the cross, the reaction was this, according to 1 Corinthians 1, verse 23. He said, to the Jews, it's a stumbling block, literally a scandal. And to the Greeks, foolishness. To them, he said, it's ludicrous. But to us... He says it is the wisdom and it's the power of God. I want to break down those four words and see the significance of each one as they tie together the message of the cross. There, they crucified him. There indicates the place 
And in our text, that place was identified. And when they had come to the place called Calvary, the word Calvary is actually a Latin word, and it's only used right here in this text. The word literally means skull. Or you could say he's referring to the place of the skull. In Matthew, Mark, and John, he actually uses the Aramaic word Golgotha. The word Golgotha means, well, it means the same thing, skull. The place of the skull. I've heard discussions among people wondering why that place was referred to as the place of the skull. Some people suggest, well, now, you know it was a place of execution, so there must have been some dead bodies around. Maybe it's because there are a lot of skulls scattered around. So it's called the place of the skull. Well, I highly, highly doubt that's why they called it the place of the skull. I have seen some pictures of an area where they think the crucifixions were taking place outside of Jerusalem. And actually, the photographs I've seen, they kind of look like a skull. I mean, the land formation, there is a hill called Mount Calvary, and it has a couple of caves on the side of it that, I guess, look like eye sockets. And yeah, it, it kind of looks like a skull. And Maybe that's it. Maybe that's why it was called the place of the skull. But I'll be honest with you. When I read Calvary or Golgotha, I do not have an image of the skull pop up in my mind. When I hear those words, I think of things like death, suffering and anguish. I think of execution. However you think of it, you must agree that that place called Calvary actually that place was a it was a shameful sort of place. In our text, right here, verse 33, it says that Jesus was surrounded by criminals, one on the right hand, the other on the left. And I suppose that those who were gathered there, when they looked at the setting, they saw Jesus as the focal point. He's right there in the middle of those two criminals. If they didn't know Jesus... They're going to assume that, yeah, this is, this is a bunch of criminals, but that one there in the middle, that has got to be the worst criminal of all. It was, it was a very shameful place. It was also, according to the text, what you would call a, a conspicuous place. Verse 35 says that the people stood looking on. In other words, a crowd had gathered right there. As Jesus is suffering in anguish and pain, here's a group, they're just gawking at him. 
But even more than that, beginning at verse 35 and continuing verse 39, we have three groups of people who are offering up all kinds of injurious things to Jesus. There are the rulers who the text says sneered at him. He saved others. Let him save himself if he is the Christ, the chosen of God. The soldiers who were there at Jesus' feet, they had been gambling for a piece of clothing, casting lots in his presence as, as he's right there watching the whole thing unfold. The Bible says that those soldiers, they mocked him. If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. And then even on one side or the other, there was a criminal who the scripture says blasphemed. If you are the Christ, save yourself and us. But as much as it was the place of the skull, a shameful and conspicuous sort of place, you know, it was also an appropriate place. Hebrews chapter 13, verses 11 and 12, says that when Sacrifices were being made, blood sacrifices. The blood was letted and it was offered as sacrifice on the altar, but the body of that animal was taken outside the gate, outside the city, and the body was burned. And that text says that in a like fashion, Jesus also suffered outside the gate. And in that, he, re he bore our reproach. It was there, the place of Calvary, the, the place of the skull, that they crucified him. I don't know if you've ever really thought much about who's responsible for Jesus' death. A good response to the question would be, well, clearly... Clearly, technically speaking, the Romans, they're responsible for the death of Jesus. He's on a Roman cross, nailed up there with Roman nails. He was pierced with a Roman spear. It was a Roman governor who made all this possible. But you know that same Roman governor, Pilate, he was minded to... Let Jesus go free. That is until the Jews rebuffed him. In John chapter 19 and verse 12. The Jews said, if you let this man go, you're not Caesar's friend. Can you feel the threat in that statement? Oh, if you let him go, words are going to get out. You know he went through with those actions, but I tend now kind of want to point my finger at those Jews right there. And there's much to offer in terms of the support of that theory. In our text again, 
Luke chapter 23, if you start at verse 13 and go through verse 25, three different times, that mob is crying out for Jesus' death. In fact, at one point, they cry out, crucify him, crucify him. They wanted him dead. In Matthew chapter 27 and verse 25, they went so far as to say, his blood be on us and on our children. We want this man dead. We'll be responsible for it. And you know, on the day of Pentecost, as Peter and the other apostles are preaching the first gospel sermon that will result in 3,000 souls added to the Lord's church. On that day, in Acts chapter 2 at verse 23, Peter condemns the Jews that are there. And he says, you took him with lawless hands, you crucified him, and you put him to death. No doubt about it. Those Jews, they're responsible. But you know that same text right there? That same text also says that it was according to the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God. In other words, as much as the Romans and the Jews were involved, this, this was planned. In fact, not just planned, it was planned because it was a necessary action on the part of God to save men. Which means then, by extension, it wasn't just the Jews who put him on that cross, or the Romans, but I put him on that cross. And, and so did you. In Romans chapter 5, verse 6 beginning, when we were still without strength in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet perhaps for a good man someone would even dare to die, but God demonstrates his own love toward us. And though while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus died for sinners. That's you and me. Or 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 4, reminds us that his death was according to the scriptures. It was foretold, fulfillment of prophecy. Or 1 Peter chapter 2, beginning at verse 21, For to this you were called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that we should follow his steps, who, when he was reviled, did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness, by whose stripes you were healed. For you're like sheep going astray, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. So I can relish the fact, when I came up out of that watery grave, my sins were washed away. Thank you, Lord. But remember, that action, that great result, is dependent on the fact that, wait a minute, I needed Jesus to die for me because I'm a sinner in the first place. Jesus said in John chapter 10, verse 15, he said, I lay down my life for the sheep. And in verse 18, he said, I have the power to lay it down. And I have the power to take it back up. 
2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. He, God, made him, Christ, who knew no sin, to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. It was there, the place called Calvary, the place of the skull, that they, sure, Romans, Jews, but also you and me, it was there that they crucified him. You and I, we don't have a grasp on what's being talked about here, crucifixion, like they did when this was originally written. Now you say, Ken, oh, hold on. It was execution, right? We still have that today. Remember, you used that comparison between the cross and the electric chair. Ken, we know about capital punishment. We know about a person dying because of their transgression. We, we understand that. No, I don't think that we do. Because even though we do have capital punishment in this country, you know that it is regulated under the prohibition against cruel and unusual punishment. When a person is electrocuted or their body is filled with caustic chemicals, it is done in such a way as the death is as painless and as quick as possible. That is not what crucifixion was. Crucifixion was an ancient horror. The Romans had devised this system of capital punishment over the course of hundreds of years, which they had adopted from the Persians themselves. Crucifixion was what was considered to be the height of science and the application of pain and anguish to sustain a human body for as long as as is possible to keep it living so that it could endure and experience the greatest amount of pain during that the period of death. It was not quick, it was long suffered. It was such a despised thing that the word crucifixion was actually a profane word. You don't speak that in society, in, in proper settings. You recognized how vile the word was and what it represented. And Roman citizens couldn't be executed that way just in respect for the citizenship and the name that they wore. It was reserved for the vilest of offenders, enemies of the state. And while reviews of the actual process of crucifixion has its own eyebrow-rising effects. To me, that 
is actually the conclusion to me of, of something that was far greater an offense. And it's described in Matthew chapter 27, verses 28 to 31, just a short section of scripture. See, in this text right here, it isn't the distance, right? The man's hanging on the cross. We see afar, he's writhing in anguish and pain. As he speaks, maybe we think he's just talking to himself. But what is described in this passage is an intimate setting where the Creator has come face to face with the created. The holy is in the presence of the unholy. The soldiers have taken Jesus and they've stripped him. And they put on him a scarlet robe. They fashioned a crown of thorns and put it on his head. The text says that they put a reed in his right hand, a, a, a switch. Then they bowed to the knee and they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And then they spit on him and they struck him with the reed. And then they took the scarlet robe off his back and they put his clothes back on him and they led him away to crucifixion. Forgive me, but I wonder about that depiction. Dressing Jesus up like a king and mocking him. Is it, is it possible that when we deny Jesus, when we are unfaithful to Jesus, when we know to do better, but we choose to do wrong anyway, is it possible that that's us standing right there, mocking Jesus? Oh, hail, King of the Jews! In Hebrews chapter 10, at verse 29, it talks about those who willfully sin, and it describes them as trampling the Son of God underfoot, counting the blood of the covenant by which He was sanctified, a common thing in insulting the Spirit of grace. That is a person who knows to do better, who has named the name of Jesus, but begins to mock Him. Is He really my King? Not if I'm truly failing to bow the knee. Not if I'm really... Mocking him instead, oh, I take the name of Jesus, but I don't live for Jesus. They carried him away to be crucified. It was there, the place called Calvary, the place of the skull, that they, Romans, Jews, you and me, crucified the horrific death of the Romans. There they crucified Him. Who was that that died that day? You know, 
honestly, there have been a lot of great men to live in history. A lot of them. Some of those great men of history died painful lives, or deaths. And even still, a smaller group of famous great men died horrific deaths, painful deaths, the result of being falsely accused of receiving a punishment that they were not due. But the thing is, the difference between those great men who died and Jesus is that they couldn't save your soul and Jesus can. In John chapter 1 and verse 29, John said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus was the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of mankind. Who was that on that day? Mark. Mark describes for us Jesus all through his account of the life of Jesus. In the very first ver verse of the book of Mark, chapter 1, verse 1, Jesus is declared to be the Son of God right off the bat. A little bit later in that chapter, chapter 1, verse 11, it is God who makes His declaration that Jesus Christ is His Son, in whom He is well pleased. In chapter 8 and verse 29, it is Peter making the confession that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. In chapter 14, verses 61 and 62, as Jesus is being questioned by the Jews... They want to know. They just point blank ask him, are you the Christ? Are you the chosen of God? He says in verse 62 simply, I am. And in chapter 15 of Mark and verse 39, after all the events of the crucifixion, a centurion who had been there from the start to the finish draws his conclusion about Jesus. And he says, truly, this man was the Son of God. Why did my Savior come to earth and to the humble go? Why did he choose a lowly birth? Because he loved me so. Why did he drink the bitter cup of sorrow, pain, and woe? Why won't the cross be lifted up? Because he loved me so. In John chapter 15, verses 13 and 14, Jesus said himself, Greater love has no one than this, than to lay down his life for his friends. And you are my friends. If you do whatever I command you. It was there, the place called Calvary, that they, and that's really you and me, crucified Him, the Son of God, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. Today, if you're a child of God, that's, that's your story. That's the story of redemption by the blood of Jesus. 
you experienced the life-saving flow of blood when you were obedient to baptism. You had your sins washed away and you rise in newness of life. But along the way, have you forsaken him? Have you stripped him? Have you mocked him with the life you've lived? If you need to repent today, let's do that. Let's confess it, be forgiven, and move forward living for Jesus. Maybe you're not a child of God today. Here's the remedy for your sin. The blood of Jesus. If you believe that he's the son of God today, you're ready to repent, turn away from the world. Confess that faith that he's the son of God, that God raised him from the dead. Be buried in water. Have your sins washed away by the blood of Jesus. Rise in newness of life. If there's anybody who needs to respond for any reason this morning, now's your opportunity. Why don't you come if you need to while we stand together and sing. Hark the gentle voice of Jesus
song before Lord's Supper this morning will be Thomas' song. for the Lord's Supper. If you would raise your hand high and we'll have our ushers bring them down to you.
we always come to this time and want to say let's prepare our hearts and minds and let's think about this, but this whole worship service has led to this moment, has led to us thinking about what Christ has done for us, what he did to save us. And the night before all that happened is when he instituted this supper. In Matthew 26, And now as they were eating, Jesus took the bread, and after blessing it, broke it, and gave it to the disciples, and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. We now have an opportunity to remember Remember again what Christ did for us. If you would, bow with me as we bless the bread. Father God, we humbly come before your throne, not worthy of the gifts that you provide. Father God, we know that your awesome plan was fulfilled there with Christ on that cross. And Father God, we partake of this bread coming before your throne, thinking about the body that he gave, the life that he lived, and the life that we strive to emulate. Father God, we pray that you will bless this. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Would you bow with me? Father in heaven, we again come before your throne knowing that the Savior's side had to be pierced and blood had to be spilled to complete that perfect sacrifice. And Father God, we thank you for that. And as we partake of this fruit of the vine, we pray that we will look on that time that he was there and that he gave his very life for us and that we will do whatever we can to give our lives to you. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. It's a matter of convenience, we take this time to remind you of the ways that we can give back to God because He's rich in, so richly blessed us, whether that's financially or in other ways that you're able to give back here to the congregation. Uh, financially here is we, you can give today in the collection plate, you can drop it off either at the office or with Billy Martin at First American, or you can give online, or you can mail it in you have the opportunity to give, and we'll bless that offering now if you would bow with me. Father God, we thank you for each and every blessing that you provide us. And Father God, we know we can never outgive you. Father God, we pray that our offering today will be acceptable to you, that we will give it with a joyful heart, and that we will be excited to provide back to the work of your kingdom, knowing that we are just a small part of it as so many from around this world do these things today, Father. We pray that our offering will enrich your kingdom and that we can be a part of it there, Father. We love you so much. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Good morning. 
like to join with Brother Jim in welcoming each and every one of you to our Sunday morning worship services. Especially to our visitors, we want to extend a warm welcome, and especially to those viewing online. We hope that you'll be able to worship with us again at the next appointed time, which will be at 5 p.m. this evening. I have a few announcements. Devotional at the Landmark Nursing and Rehab is today at 4 p.m. If you're willing to help with this ministry, please see Jim Estes. Our area-wide youth night is tonight in Corinth. We will leave from the TAC at 4 p.m. This is for all 7th through 12th graders. All Lads to Leaders event, le event leaders are asked to meet tonight in front of the auditorium following our classes. Also, Sister Jean Kaiser will turn 99 on September the 28th. If you can, please send her a card. Her, her address is in the bulletin. We're also sad to announce that uh, Sister Jean Franks Booker passed away. Her funeral will be Wednesday, September the 22nd at 11 at the South Huntington Church of Christ. Uh, many of you will remember her. She is the widow of Al Franks. They were here many times, especially uh, with the Magnolia Messenger. We had 175 this morning for worship, and I also have a card. It says, thank you, dear church family. Ben and I would like to say thank you so much for all of the support, prayers, and calls, your flowers, your visits, and the wonderful meals during my knee surgery. God bless you all in Christian love, Ben and Joanne Roberts. That's all the announcements I have at this time. If you would, please stand and we'll be dismissed. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for this opportunity we've had to come together to worship you. Father, we pray that you will be with all those who are sick Especially, Father, we want to pray for Brian Rowland, Mackenzie McKinney, Roger Griffin, Steel Moreland, David Yates. And, Father, we know there are many, many others. You know their needs. Be with them. Be with their health care workers that they may return to their most wanted places in life. Father, we also pray for all those who have lost loved ones. And especially, Father, we pray for the Franks Booker family and the loss of Sister June. Father, we pray that you will be with them comfort them as only you can. Father, also, we want to pray for our sister Anita coming forward this morning. Father, we pray for her as well as for all of us. Father, for all of us can say the same thing. We all fall short of your glory, Father, and we pray that we will strive daily to do thy will and to shine thy light before others. Father, we ask you that you go with us, guide us, and keep us near thee. In Christ's name, amen.